Chapter 13, Part 2 of More Love to Thee, The Life and Letters of Elizabeth Prentice. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kristen Hand. More Love to Thee, The Life and Letters of Elizabeth Prentice by George Prentice. Chapter 13, Part 2 goes to dorset christian example at work among her flowers dangerous illness her feeling about dying death an invitation from christ the undercurrent bears home more love more love a trait of character special mercies what makes a sweet home letters Early in June, accompanied by the three younger children, she went to Dorset. This change always put her into a glow of pleasurable emotion. Once out of the city, she was like a bird let loose from its cage. In a letter to her husband, dated somewhere on the road, 5 o'clock p.m., she wrote, M is laughing at me because, Patty-like, I proposed informing you in a P.S. that we had reached Dorset, as if the fact of mailing a letter there could not prove it so I will take her advice and close this now. I feel that our cup of mercies is running over. We ought to be ever so good. And I am ever so loving. We are all as gay as larks, she wrote a few days later. And in spite of the heat, drought, overwork, and sickness, she continued in this mood most of the summer. But while gay as a lark, she was also grave and thoughtful. Her delight in nature seemed only to increase her interest in divine things and her longing to be like Christ. In a letter to one of her young friends, having spoken of prayer as the greatest favor one friend can render another, she adds, But perhaps I may put one beyond it, Christian example. I ought to be so saintly, so consecrated, that you could not be with me and not catch the very spirit of heaven. Never get a letter from me that did not quicken your steps in the divine life. But while I believe the principle of love to Christ is entrenched in the depths of my soul, the emotion of love is hot always in that full play I want it to be. No doubt he judges us by the principle he sees to exist in us, but we can't help judging ourselves, in spite of ourselves, by our feelings. At church this morning my mind kept wandering to and fro. I thought of you about twenty times, thought about my flowers, thought of five hundred one other things, and then got up and sang, I love thy kingdom, Lord, as if I cared for that and nothing else. What he has to put up with in me but I believe in him, I love him, I hate everything in my soul and in my life that is unlike him. I hope the confession of my shortcomings won't discourage you. It is no proof that at my age you will not be far beyond such weakness and folly as often carry me away captive. As far as earthly blessings go, I am as near perfect happiness as a human can be. Everything is heaped on me. What I want is more of Christ, and that is what I hope you pray that I may have. To another young friend, she writes, June 12th, We have our varied experiences, sick or well, and the discipline of a heart not perfectly satisfied with what it gets from God often alternates with the peace of which you speak as just now yours. What a blessed thing this very peace of God is. There is no earthly joy to be compared with it, but to go patiently on without it when it is not given is, I think, a great achievement. For instance, if I held no communication with you for a year, would it not be a wonderful proof of your love to and faith in me, 
if you kept on writing me and telling me your joys and trials? To go back, I have been a good deal confused by the contradictory testimony of different Christians, and am driven more and more to a conviction that human beings, at the best, are very fallible. We must get our light directly from on high. At the same time, we influence each other for right or for wrong, and one who is thoroughly upright and true will unconsciously influence and help those about him. I am enjoying, as I always do, having the three younger children close about me here, and all sleeping on my floor. We are really like four children, continually frolicking together. We are all crowded now into my den, and I wish you were here with us to be the fifth kitten. Did you ever read that story? To Mrs. Catherine G. Leeds, Dorset, July 12, 1873. It was ever so kind in you to let us share in your relief and pleasure, and we unite in affectionate congratulations to you all. I do hope this new and precious treasure will be spared to his dear mother, and grow up to be her stay and staff years hence. It is the nicest thing in the world to have a baby. What marvels they are in every respect, but especially in their royal power over us. In spite of the dry weather, we have had a pleasant summer so far. Just before we entirely burned up and turned to tinder, showers came to our relief, and our gardens are putting on some faint smiles and making some promises. I did not allow a drop of water to be wasted for weeks. Dish water, soap, suds, dairy water, everything went to my flower beds, and each night after Mr. Prentice came, a barrel full was carted up from the pond for me. How many the rest used, I don't know. Disposing of such a load has not been blessed to my health, and I have had to draw in my horns a little. But M and I work generally like two-day laborers for the wages we get, and those wages are flowers here, there, and everywhere, to say nothing of ferns, brakes, mosses, scarlet berries, and the like. And when flowers fail, we fall back on different shades of green, the German ivy being relieved by a background of dark foliage, or light grasses against grave ones. And when we hit on any new combination, each summons the other to be lost in admiration. And when we are too sore and stiff from weeding, grass shearing, or watering, we fall to framing little pictures or to darning stockings, which she does so beautifully that it has become a fine art with her, or I betake myself to the sewing machine and stitch for legs that seem to grow long by the minute. What the rest of the family are about, meanwhile, I cannot exactly say. Mr. Prentice sits in a chair with an umbrella over his head and pulls up a weed now and then, and then strolls off with a straw in his mouth. He also drives off sometimes on foraging expeditions and comes back with butter, eggs, etc., and on hot days takes a bath where a stream of cold water dashes over him. Splendid, he says, and horrid, I say. The boys are up to everything. They are carpenters and plumbers and trouters and harnessers and drivers. H has just learned to solder and saves me no little trouble and expense by stopping leakages. Heretofore, every holy vessel had to be sent out of town. Both boys have gardens and sell vegetables to their father at extraordinary prices, and they are now filling up a deep ditch 500 feet long at a York shilling an hour. Men get a long shilling and do the work no better. With the money thus made, they buy tools of all sorts, seeds and fruit trees, but no nonsense. Three happier children than these three cannot be found. You may be interested, too, to know what are the famous works of art we are framing, as above referred to. Well, photographs of our kindred and friends, for one thing. My brothers, my husband's mother, and the other relatives of his. Professor and Mrs. Smith, Mr. and Mrs. B.B., and so on. A good deal. 
as it has happened, for everybody hasn't been photographed, and some bodies have not given us their pictures. You, for instance, and if you want to be hung as high as Haman in my den, nine feet square, where I write, why, you can. Last summer I had a mania for illuminating and made about a cord of texts and mottos. I can't paint, so I cut letters out of red, blue, and black paper, and deceived thereby the very elect, for even Mrs. Washburn was all taken in, and said they were painted nicely. Your little note has drawn large interest, hasn't it? Well, it deserved its fate. Hardly had she finished this letter when she was taken very ill. For a while it seemed as if the time of her departure had come. At her request the children were called to her bedside, and she gave them in turn her dying counsels, bade them live for Christ as the only true abiding good, and then kissed each of them goodbye. She was much disappointed on finding that her sickness, after all, was not an invitation from the master. "'You don't get away this time,' said her husband to her, half playfully, half exultingly, referring to her eagerness to go. And here it may not be amiss to say a word as to her state of mind respecting death. After her release, her husband thus described it to a friend. "'Her feeling about dying seemed to me to be almost unique. In all my pastoral experience, at least, I do not recall another case quite like it.' Her faith in a better world, that is, a heavenly, was quite as strong as her faith in God and in Christ. She regarded it as the true home of the soul, and the tendency of a good deal of modern culture to put this world in its place as man's highest sphere and end, struck her as a mockery of the holiest instincts at once of humanity and religion. Death was associated in her mind with the instant realization of all her sweetest and most precious hopes. She viewed it as an invitation from the King of Glory to come and be with him. During the more than three-and-thirty years of our married life, I doubt if there was ever a time when the summons would have found her unwilling to go. Rarely, if ever, a time when she would not have welcomed it with great joy. On putting to her the question, would you be ready to go now? She would answer, why, yes, in a tone of calm assurance, rather of visible delight, which I can never forget. And during all her later years, her answer to such a question would imply a sort of astonishment that anybody could ask it. So strong, indeed, was her own feeling about death as a real boon to the Christian, that she was scarcely able, I think, fully to sympathize with those who regarded it with misgiving or terror. The point may be illustrated, perhaps, by referring to her perfect fearlessness and repose in the midst of the most terrific thunderstorm. No matter how vivid the lightning's flashes, or how near and loud the claps that followed, they affected her nerves as little as any summer breeze, scarcely ever awaking her if asleep, or hindering her from going to sleep if awake. And so it was with regards to the terrors of death. But not merely was there an absence of all apparent dread of death, but an exulting joy in the thought of it. There is a passage in The Home at Greylock, which was evidently inspired by her own experience. It is where old Mary, when her first wild burst of grief was over, said, Sure, she's got her wish and died sudden. She was always ready to go, and now she's gone. Often's the time I've heard her talk about dying, and I mind a time when she thought she was going, and there was a light in her eye, and what do you think of that, says she. I declare it was just as she looked when she says to me, Mary, I'm going to be married, and what do you think of that, says she. This feeling about death is the more noteworthy in her case because of her very deep, poignant sense of sin and her own unworthiness. To a friend, Dorset, July twenty seventh, eighteen seventy three. This is my third Sunday home from church. I have been confined to my bed only about a week, but it took me some days to run down to that point, and now it is taking some to run me up again. 
I had two or three very suffering days and nights, and the doctor was here nearly all of one day and night, but was very kind, understood my case, and managed it admirably. He is from Manchester and is the son of a missionary. You speak in your letter of being oppressed by the heart and wearied by visitors, and say that prayer is little more than uttering the name of Jesus. I've asked myself a great many times this summer how much that means. All I can utter sometimes is thy name. This line expresses my state for a good while. Of course, getting out of one house into another and coming up here, all in the space of one month, was a great tax on time and strength, and all of my regular habits had to be broken up. Then, before the ram was put in, I overexerted myself, unconsciously, carrying two heavy pails of water to my flower beds, and so broke down. For some hours the end looked very near, but I do not know whether it was stupidity or faith that made me so content to go. I am afraid that a good deal of what passes for the one is really the other. Fortunately for us, our faith does not entitle us to heaven any more than our stupidity shuts us out of it. When we get there, it will be through him who loved us. But, if I may judge by the experience of this little illness, our hearts are not so tied to or in love with this world as we fear. We make the most of it as long as we must stay in it, but the undercurrent bears home. The following extract from a letter to a young relative, dated September 23rd, furnishes at once a key to several marked traits of her character, and a practical comment upon her own hymn, More Love to Thee, O Christ. I had no right to leave my friend undefended. I prayed to do it aright. If I did not, I am not ashamed to say I am sorry for it, and ask you to forgive me. And if I were twice as old as I am, and you twice as young, I would do it. I will not tolerate anything wrong in myself. I hate, I hate sin against my God and Savior and sin against the earthly friends whom I love with such a passionate intensity that they are able to wring my heart out, and always will be if I live to be a hundred. People who feel strongly express themselves strongly. Vehemence is one of my faults. Let us pray for each other. We have great capacities for enjoyment, but we suffer more keenly than many of our race. I have been an intense sufferer in many ways. The story would pain you. Nobody can go through this world with a heart and a soul, and jog along smoothly long at a time. I do not remember ever having a discussion on paper with my husband. We should not dare to run the risk. But I know I said something once in a letter, I forget what, that made him snatch the first train and rush to set things straight, though it cost him a two-day's journey. We are tremendous lovers still. Write and tell me we've kissed and made up. We both mean well. We don't want to hurt each other but each has one million points that are very vulnerable, and neither can know these points in the other by intuition. A cry of pain will often be the first intimation that one can hurt the other just there. We must touch each other with the tips of our fingers. To love Christ more, this is the deepest need, the constant cry of my soul. Down in the bowling alley and out in the woods and on my bed and out driving, when I am happy and busy and when I am sad and idle, the whisper keeps going up for more love, more love, more love. To a Christian friend, Dorset, October 3rd, 1873. I do hope you will be in New York this winter and your mother too. What a blessing to have a mother with whom one can hold Christian communion. You need some trials as they set off to it. You say few live up to what light they have. It is true. I think we get light just as fast as we are ready for it. At the same time, I must own that I have not all the light I need. I am still puzzled as to the true way to live, 
how far to cherish a spirit that makes one sit very lightly to all earthly things when that spirit unfits one to a great extent to be an agreeable thoroughly sympathizing companion to one's children for instance my children have a real horror of miss blank because she thinks and talks on only one subject of course it never would do for me to do as she does as far as they are concerned perhaps the problem may be resolved by a resort to the fact that we are not called to the same experience and yet an experience of as perfect love and faith as is ever vouchsafed to a soul on earth is what i long for at times my heart dies within me when i realize how much i need as you say no doubt the mental strain i had been passing through prepared the way for my breakdown in health as i lay as i thought dying i said so to myself that strain is over i am in a sense of rest but not satisfied i have been too near to christ to be happy in anything else i don't mean by that however that i never try to be happy in other things alas i do as to the minor trials no life is without them but what mercies we get every now and then the other day three letters came to me by one mail each of which was important and came from exactly the quarter where i was troubled and dispersed the trouble to a great degree in fact i am overwhelmed with mercies and dreadfully stupid and unthankful for them i have had also some experiences of late of the smallness and meanness of which you have had specimens one has to betake oneself to prayer to get a sight of one who is large-hearted and noble and good and true oh how narrow human narrowness must look to him i don't know how many times i have smiled at your remark about miss blank she seems to have such a hard time to learn her lessons i feel sorry for her in one sense but if she belongs to christ isn't he home enough for her i think it always a very doubtful experiment to offer other people a home with you and equally doubtful whether such an offer is wisely accepted being a saint does not i am sorry to say necessarily make one an agreeable addition to the family circle as god has formed it if his hand sends this new element into the house of course one may expect grace to bear it but voluntarily to seek it argues either want of experience or an immense power of self-sacrifice i should prefer miss blank's friends agreeing to give her an independent home as far as a boarding-house can furnish a home and if it provides a place in which to pray as sweet a home may be found there as anywhere we go to town on the ninth of this month mr prentice has been gone some time and has entered upon his new duties with great delight i must confess that if i were going to choose my work in life i could think of nothing more congenial than to train young christians it has come over me lately that all those whom he now instructs have more or less of the new life in them i am sorry however to add that some young theological friends of mine deny this they say that many young men preparing for the ministry give no other sign of piety young people judge hastily and severely as soon as i get over my first hurry after reaching home i hope you will come and see me you speak of my experience on my sick bed as a precious one to tell you the truth it does not seem so to me i mean nothing extraordinary not to want to go if invited would be a contradiction to most of my life but as i was not invited i realize i am needed here and i am afraid it was selfish to be so delighted to go horribly selfish End of chapter 13 Part 2